Marcus Giuliano here, your host of In the Weeds, Real Tales from the Restaurant Industry. Um, my voice is a little off today, so I apologize. Um, I feel fine, but I just, you know, can't um, seem to find my voice, but I have my energy, so we're going to continue with the show. And um, who is joining me today? Hi, it's Pam Goodwin with Goodwin Commercial based here in Dallas, Texas. Excellent. Thank you, Pam, for joining. Um, you and I have had some great conversation. Um, this content today is going to be amazing for restaurateurs because you have some really vast experience on, um, on buildups and what consumers are looking for out there, the expectations and reality of what's happening in this industry. So I can't wait to jump into this. I've learned just by talking to you already before we've started this. So that's awesome. All right. So tell us a little bit about what your experiences are in the past. You've been in doing real estate for what, 30 plus years or so you just mentioned. Um, talk about your days of building restaurants with Brinker and, and how it's all started. Well, thanks again for having me on your show. Always love talking about the restaurant business. I know it's hard to believe now more than 30 years, but one advantage that I have over a lot of people really is that I've worked on the landlord side and I've worked on the tenant side, which most people either only work on the landlord side or only on the tenant side. So having that experience of both, it, it's great when it comes down to negotiation. But I thought I wanted to, like yourself, own a restaurant. So I thought I better go learn from the best, one of the best top real, you know, restaurant companies in the world, which based here in Dallas is Brinker International. So I was able to get a job in their property development department and working on the Chili's account. And at that time, at that time, they owned about seven restaurants Brinker did. Now they're down to just Chili's and Maggiano's. I had Chili's in about five states. And at the time when we started, I think we were developing 50 a year and then it went to 75 a year. And then by the third year I was there, it was 150 we were opening up a year. So almost every other day, a new restaurant. And I had the Texas market one of, and I would open about 15 um, chilies a year is what I was able to open up. So, which meant property development. We were, you know, they had a real estate department then I took over overseeing all the due diligence meeting with the landlord, meeting with the city. So after that, I, you know, have become an expert on due diligence of knowing what to look for in the restaurant world, that upfront cost that can really throw off a performa when the restaurant opens, if they're going to be successful or not. Excellent. So you mentioned uh, Maggiano's. So the first time I was ever in one was in Denver. And when I was told that Brinker owned it, that it was a chain. I said, you're kidding me. The guy who greeted us spoke Italian. <laughs> they altered things on the menu for us. I said, the experience was amazing. I said, there's no way this is a chain. And this is pre-smartphones, so I couldn't look it up then. So I had to bet with my friend, <laughs> went back to our desktop computer and looked everything over like, man, I can't believe this. Amazing, amazing concept. It became one of my favorite restaurants when I went to Denver um, and ate. Um, because just the hospitality, um, and I'm a chef, and my friend that I went with is a chef, we had very high expectations of food and service. And they consistently delivered time and time again. I felt like I was walking into an independently owned Italian restaurant. The maitre d' there spoke Italian. I felt like it was, he felt, I felt like it was his restaurant that he was managing, and he would 
we would tip him extra every time because the experience was amazing. Talk about guest expectations, um, how, how they executed, executed that and what today's guest expectations are. Because this is the mid 90s, late 90s. I know it's still key today with the restaurants because you know there's, there's a, so many restaurants and the guest ex, you know, expectations are really high. And even at the Brinker days, I would see the comments coming in of, you know, they would do a survey at the time on, on the service. But if there's one mistake, as you know, one mistake in anything, you don't like the food, it's cold, it doesn't taste well, you're not going back to that restaurant. And you have to have that consistency and high expectations. And today, everybody's looking for something completely unique and different. My husband, he just showed, you know, he, he was just eating at a Mexican restaurant. I had not seen this before for lunch, but they actually were making the margarita, how you've seen the nitrogen or the frozen ice cream. They actually made a margarita like that, table side margarita, making it frozen in front of you, and they sold it for 20 bucks each. And it got a lot of attention. You post it on social media, and it just kind of explodes from there. So you have to be unique and create something different unless you're Chick-fil-A, which you're completely consistent, and the drive-through is, you know, 20, 30 cars behind. So wow. it's key. $20 margarita. So here's what I found in my experience. People will pay for the experience. Mm -hmm. No problem. If you got a, if I got a $7 margarita and it was terrible, I'd be upset. If I got a $20 margarita and it was amazing, I'm going to get another one. <laughs> I think a lot of restaurateurs are afraid to charge. So, but when the delivery is there, there's no problem. And, um, this is a great example of, 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 of tough table side, the margarita table side. That's amazing. Um, so great, great, great point on that. So as far as guest expectations, where's Starbucks going? In your experience, where's Starbucks going? Because I find this fascinating. I, yeah, Starbucks, you know, they, you know, they, they were doing really well, kind of slowed down. And now, just last month, like November 15th in Chicago on Michigan Avenue, they have opened the largest Starbucks in the world, 35,000 square feet on five different levels. It's their Starbucks reserve concept, selling a variety from coffee to wine to pastries to food to back to that experience. And when they first opened up the line, I'm sure it's still probably out the door to get that you know, five or $10 cup of coffee now that people will pay for. Wow. So folks, I hope, hope you heard Pam say this 35,000 square feet, not 3,500, <laughs> 35,000 square feet. So what's your advice to restaurants that, that want to reinvent themselves um, or increase their offerings, increase their sizes? Do you have any advice for restaurants like that? Just, Real, I always say really study the competition and see what's going on and, you know, why is there a line at one door and not a line at the other place? You know, really study those concepts of, you know, really what's working, you know, or not working. And you just have to really be unique. I worked on a fun concept, Rock and Brews, if you've heard of them. They're based out of Los Angeles and couple of the founders are from KISS, Gene Simmons and Paul Stanley. And I was their broker, found them in their first Texas location. But when they opened up here, 
it was a huge success because you could, you know, bring your pet, you could bring your kids, you could bring your Harley Davidson. They made it outdoor. They made it fun. You know, it's a, a great concept. One other concept that just opened here is the, um, it's called the uh, truck yard. And this company just took, I don't even know how many acres it is just in the middle of trees and opened up a big food truck. And it's a, it's been such a successful concept. And the guy bought a toilet museum, you know, and just made it totally different. And it's just really, really fun. And it's a huge brew house, but people love to go to it. So if you're innovative and have some, something I think unique and make it fun and exciting, that's friendly, you know, for a variety from pets to kids to a variety, you have to really be unique these days. I, that's awesome. I totally agree with that. Have you heard of that restaurant in on Vancouver Island, um, Goats on the Roof? Uh, it sounds kind of familiar. Yeah. It's been a while since, yeah. They put goats on their roof, um, grass roofs, and uh, people drive like a million visitors a year go to this restaurant that has goats on their roof. They've expanded to an ice cream shop, a... Um, a restaurant, a market, this whole thing. And people will literally park a mile away <laughs> on the street to walk down and get this experience. So, you know, talk about being unique. And I, I encourage a lot of restaurateurs, you're not going to put goats on your roof, but what can you do to say, oh, wow, we're going to go to that restaurant that has that, that has such and such, that has so-and-so. So that's always a challenge I post to restaurateurs. What, what is your goat? What, you need a goat. What's your goat? <laughs> right. It's either that or you have to have, like, I love fantastic bread and butter at a restaurant. So, you know, that will get me there. So if you're not doing stuff like that, you know, you have to have that one thing that really sticks out. The ducks walking out at 12 o'clock or, you know, something like that to get attention and make it fun. Bread, bread and butter is so important. It's people's first experience of food at a place. Right, that's our very first experience. And when that goes right, it sets the expectations and the mind for everything is so great. That, that is a great takeaway. If, if anybody's watching this, just to be able to get good bread and butter, hot bread, good quality butter in a restaurant, olive oil, whatever it is with your going, we use bean dip with ours. So it's like, oh wow, bean dip, what's in that? And that sparks the whole conversation. White bean, organic local, white beans, rosemary thyme, olive oil, and sea salt. We're like, oh my gosh, that's great. And they take home pints of bean dip because they can't get it anywhere else. That's our goat when it comes to our bread. Um, so yeah, bread, folks, this is so important. First impression of food at a restaurant, the bread is good. Things are going to be easier along the way. So you've built yeah, selling, Yeah, selling that, selling that sizzle, as you know, right. main item. Right. So you've, you've worked with restaurants from building from the ground up. So building the building to helping restaurants find current locations that are already built. Talk to about some of the advantages of each. So, yeah, I mean, from the ground up, you definitely get to build what you want. Today, the costs are so expensive these days that a lot of people, the restaurants I'm representing are looking for second generation spaces. And especially if you carry alcohol here in Texas, we're able to look up what percentage of alcohol sales are at a restaurant. So I can go, I always provide that for my restaurant clients, knowing what the alcohol sales are in that location, which is always key to make sure you want that top location. And, and then inline spaces, 
you know, I have a project now, it's been a little tough to lease just because it's all shell space. And for, as you know, to build out a restaurant, it can be so expensive with all the plumbing, grease traps, and all of that, that a lot of people are looking at sec second generation, but then you have to, people kind of get a little nervous of second generation. Why did the first restaurant go out, the third restaurant go out in that location? So, you know, you just really have to, the rock and brews I put in now, they were the first restaurant to go in a new development, a 400 development with our brand new Nebraska furniture mark, you know, developed by Warren Buffett and a huge success. But now they have 18 restaurants that have opened in the area. I just met with them, it has a big impact. So if you're looking for restaurants, you need to go, you know, two, one mile, two mile radius and count every single restaurant in that area to make sure, you know, you're still gonna get customers in that location. Yes, so in the state of Texas, you can look up it's public knowledge, the percentage of alcohol the previous place sold. Is that correct? Right. Any, right. Any, any open restaurant, existing restaurant now. So I can look up a Chili's in any of the Dallas markets here and kind of get an idea of which one are their top locations based off of their alcohol sales. Or if I'm, you know, I, I was always, I was working on a small town telling a, a national tenant to go into the smaller town. And I did a comparison of what their alcohol sales were versus Maine and Maine and Dallas. And in the small town, their alcohol sales, and I knew their restaurants were doing better in that small town than if you went in a big, everybody always thinks you have to go in the big city, the big Metroplex. And you can sometimes, a lot of times do better in a smaller town with less competition and it proved well, they ended up going in that smaller town doing better there than one of their highest, you know, locations here in Dallas. And you, you just have to kind of prove it to them. A lot of times they're hesitant going into smaller markets like that, but it can be a big advantage. Yes. Wow. Good point. Uh, new restaurant tours when they're, when they're looking for location, um, does the delivery aspect come into play at all? The new, the grub hubs, all that kind of stuff. Is, is that a factor when people are looking at locations? Yeah, it's definitely, definitely a factor and restaurants are going smaller stores and concepts because of the multi-billion dollar delivery factor. You know, there's some companies out there now um, that are de developing concepts and having a kitchen only that chilies and Applebee's and you know, that they can just rent out the kitchen for delivery only. And you know, corner bakery, some of those concepts are looking into that. So if they're not able to get into the market, they can still go that way. But the delivery business, you know, you'll see it now instead of to go signs, you'll see delivery because how important to have the right mobile app that you can order online don't have to get out of your car. They bring it right to you. You don't have to wait in line. Everybody's in a rush and a hurry these days to get their food. So you have to be on top of all the technology these days too. I recently saw somebody talking about this. They say you want to be in the restaurant industry without any of the hassles, start a delivery service and delivery, do delivery for five restaurants, 10 mm -hmm. restaurants. And you'll be in the restaurant business without, without the hassle. Um, and you'll probably make more than the restaurant. So... Um, that's, I mean, the, you said multi-billion dollar industry. So that, um, 
that right there means that um, that's a uh, very viable and um, it's got a lot of legs there. So, wow, I didn't realize it was that big of an industry. I think so, it's getting up to, they predict about 35 billion wow. coming up here in the next couple of years. So if, if you're not, if your restaurant's not on top of the delivery, you know, if you go that route, you know, you're, you're going to be missing it. Some of them have gone their own delivery too. I mean, Starbucks is now delivering, you know, Chipotle's delivering, but to have Starbucks delivering your coffee, I, I think I'm going to try just to see how they do. Yes. Test it out. Right. See what's happening. So, so when you say they're delivering themselves, so they're in-house delivering, they have an in-house delivery system. Right. Cause a lot of those Dash and Uber Eats charge the restaurant such a large fee, you know, they're really cutting into their, you know, money that they're making so they're having to create some of their own delivery services they're finding out because the fees are way too high on some of these services well, upwards of 25 percent i hear some people saying mm -hmm. we don't have that in where i'm at because we're in such a small area um we have a courtesy van and i'll go pick people up and bring them to the restaurant mm -hmm. no problem and take them home obviously if they've been drinking or they just need a ride or they come up from new york city and have a car and they're staying in an airbnb We'll deliver people, not food. I mean, I'll deliver food too, but I we deliver people. I I'll love that. Pick you up and yeah, we have a courtesy man. Works out fantastic. Everybody loves it. It's so, all about service, as you know. Right. I'm the only one in town that has it, and the hotels know it, and it works fantastic. And it's I love just, that. It's that expectation of just going above and beyond, like, oh, we'll get you home now. We'll pick you up now. or get you back to the hotel. Perfectly fine. They're like, oh my gosh, thank you so much. And I, I see people... And they're trying to call a cab at the, at, at the table. My wait staff is like, no, no, don't call a cab. Where are you, where are you going? We'll get you there. And they're like, really? Will you, we have a courtesy man. We'll take care of it. Oh, wow. That, a, I love that. It's amazing. Really amazing. So, all right. Um, let's circle back around the customer expectations and talk about food halls. Where do you see food halls going? I predict them to still be booming because it's a great way here in Dallas at Legacy Food Hall is one of our first ones here in the Metroplex to open up here, in which was a huge success. And they ended up doing three levels, the bottom floor. They're about 300 square feet each. And they it, it's nice for to start off in a restaurant. They didn't want any chains in there. So they got a lot of the chefs that were on a lot of the different chef shows and one. And so it's about, I had a client looking at it to go in there and they had to do, he had, him and his mom had to do a food taste for the landlord. And they're about 300 square feet. They provide a lot of the, you know, infrastructure to get started. So it's low entry to get started, but they were charging about 25, 28% of your sales. And they expected each one of those 300 to make at least a million dollars each per year. So they were charging a percentage rent only. They took no, they owned all the alcohol. They had the bar in the middle. And so they were profiting off that. They had three floors. The other two floors were all bars and now they have an outdoor container box. They have it with concerts and stuff. But it's a restaurant guy here that's done a fabulous job and they take no, you know, no cash can be exchanged anywhere. You either have to have a credit card or you have to get one, you know, give them your cash and then they'll give you a card that you use. So they know exactly how much money is, is going in. So, 
and they're opening up that, that same food hall concept around the country. Now they've done really well, but I see, as you know, trying to find a place to eat. Even my husband and I, our two boys are off in college, but when there are four of us, we wanted four different things to eat. It's a great way for you know people to go get whatever they want and then sit at the same table. Right. I find the food halls I go to, there's one pizza place. There's one Thai place. There's one sushi place. There's one barbecue place. There's one Italian place. So it's a great way, like you said, for everybody to be happy and just and then sit down and all eat together mm -hmm. from four different restaurants. So yeah, food halls are very, very cool. Um, very, very cool. All right. Let's talk about um back to uh a company like brinker let's talk about one of the biggest failures that you saw happen and ha and what happened as a result of it what i learned from the brinker days is i when i was working on on the border they decided to go into the houston market and houston probably i you know they have a lot of um, everybody's expectation of Mexican food is different, <laughs> for example. And even though, De you know, Brinker's based here in Dallas, Houston, you would think that they knew the market. The people in Houston did not like on the border Mexican food. And those four or five on the border I opened up all closed within a year. Wow. So just because you think you know that Mexican, I've seen it too, Del Taco, I didn't represent them, but they're based out of California. They came here to Texas thinking everybody would like their Mexican food, Del Taco. They all closed within a year. So, you no know, type deal. So, you really have to know your market, you know, try it out, see how well it does. Because I see California companies coming to Texas, think they're going to make it. Texas going to California, think they're going to make it. It doesn't. And so, you know, we all have a different perception of what we like for a hamburger, what we like for Italian. It's that demographic you really have to get to know. Or one restaurant can hurt 10 of your restaurants and profits. Right. So I've noticed that chains make quick decisions to pull out of markets. Independents don't. Mm -hmm. They ride the storm. And, you know, I mean, logistically, I should have filed bankruptcy four times in my first five years because it was just one of those things where, this come, I was not, it was not working. I didn't change my concept. I just kept working harder, marketing harder. And then one day a friend of mine said to me, Marcus, I own nine restaurants and you work harder than I do in your one restaurant. Mm -hmm. And it dawned on me that I was just doing the wrong activities. Mm -hmm. And I need to focus more on marketing, bringing people in, working on my business, not in my business. But I find a lot of independents just keep riding this out and keep taking loans, keep mortgaging things, and the chains know right away, first year, hey, our numbers aren't there. It's time to cut our losses. Yeah. We're out. We're out of here. See you later. Bye. Um, we know. We know our calculated loss, and that's it. What yeah, I, I was. I was just gonna say, you know, another thing. Learning from the restaurant business that when you work for one of the largest chains in the world, they ha they really do have it down to a science. They know exactly what size of straw to use the size of it makes a difference on how much people will drink soda, for example. They know that putting a picture of 
you know, you may know this too, but I learned, you know, putting a picture on your menu, you want to put a picture of the highest margin, the most money you're going to make. So if it's the chicken, you know, you put that on there because it's 25 to 35% of people order off of that picture. So put the pictures that you're going to make the most money off, the most drinks and all that. But even down to chair size, you know, it's all such a science. So those national companies really, really do do in-depth studies. That's fantastic. So I never thought about the straw. So I'm assuming if you're giving free refills on soda, small straw, they won't drink as much. If you're charging for refills, give them a big straw. Right, exactly. Drinking and drinking. Love it. I love, I love that. Love that. You know, because realistically, you take a lot of small incremental numbers. And when you combine all those things, that's your profit. Yeah, it comes then, down to chart, you know, the debates that they talked about, do you charge the consumer extra 25 cents for that ranch dressing? But when you own a, you know, a company like that, that has 1600 restaurants and you, you either charge or you don't charge really has, it's a, <laughs> they do numbers that it can cost them millions of dollars by not charging that 25 cents. So. Right, exactly. So this is all, this is always like a debate between restaurateurs. Do I charge or do I don't? Me personally, I charge that, I would charge 25 cents extra to begin with on everybody's dish. Mm -hmm. And I don't care who orders a side of ranch or a side of pickles. I've already kind of buffered that in there. Sometimes you nickel and dime people, they're upset. And they're like, well, this is a turnoff. I've already spent 16 bucks. It's like a delivery fee. Right. I order from these companies, I'll spend $2,000 on food and they're charging me five bucks to deliver it. No, no. Wrap the five dollars in, put it in my two thousand dollar bill, and don't let me see it. I don't want to see it. Turn off for five lousy bucks. You're gonna nickel and dime me. So that's how I kind of feel. Like, have you ever seen the Bob Farrell um, pickle story? Yes. Yeah, we yeah. had that. Yeah, I've seen that movie on that. Mm -hmm. We had that. At Brinker presented that to us. Yeah, very powerful. Very powerful. Just give them the pickle. Charge them for it, but don't think they're getting charged for it. Because we all have, I mean, let's face it, there's no fairy in our kitchen waving her wand and providing free pickles or free ranch dressing. So, but it's how we, I think, how we deliver the cost to the consumer. So. I, I know just, just lately ordering some, you know, food, food delivery, the ones that pop up first that have the free delivery versus the one that want to charge you a dollar ninety nine is you know it's all it's like if I can save two bucks on a delivery I'm going to kind of look at the ones that are offering free it's it's just psychologically just saving money or a little bit free no matter you know who right. you are that's a great point free delivery um, I'm sure you've have seen you know who Gary Vaynerchuk is uh -huh. he was back in the wine days he said one of his most powerful promotions was free shipping. Raise the price of the product, tell people it's free shipping. And he said, you would send a tweet out free shipping on this bottle and he would sell out. It was amazing what the yeah. psychology of, again, you have to charge for it because nobody waving their wand for free shipping. There's no free shipping fairy that comes to your wine shop and goes, okay, nothing's worth charging today, but it's the <laughs> delivery and how people perceive that charge or not getting charged. So very and I think powerful. that's why, yeah, I think that's why Amazon has been so popular because I definitely look for, you know, prime member, look for those free deliveries versus if I see four ninety-nine, six ninety-nine, eight ninety-nine, I I don't even want to look at that item for some reason. 
Right. Zappos mastered it. Mm -hmm. Charge you full price, no discounts, but ship them back as many as many times as you want. Zero hassles, free shipping, free shipping back. So yeah, this says a lot of what we can adapt to the restaurant world. And I think it was smart. I think it's, um, uh, I believe it's Domino's Pizza that has the insurance that if they're not making your pizza correctly, they will, you know, redo it and re-deliver it. So That's they're kind of, yeah, they're taking that same approach of, you know, Zappos, free delivery. If it's not right, come back. And so you can really learn a lot from other companies and implement it into the restaurant business because it's such, you know, as you know, since, since you can't eat online yet, it's still a growing business and people just, it, it's still booming and you have to really, you know, stand out in unique ways. Well, excellent. All right, Pam, last thing. What is one advice you would give to a new restaurant owner? Um, any, doesn't matter the concept or anything. Um, let's just say what's, what's the one thing you've learned through your Brinker days, through the real estate, um, all of your real extensive real estate experience. What's the one piece of advice you would tell a new restaurateur? I'm gonna open a restaurant next year. Where do I start? What do I do? I, I would always say that you definitely have to know your numbers. So as you know, typically knowing if you're renting space that you need to know exactly what those numbers are because it's pretty much 10% of what you're paying in rent is what you need to make in sales. So if you're paying a hundred thousand a year in rent, you need to make a million dollars in, you know, revenue in your restaurant business. And you really have to know all of those costs in your business plan, you know, really before you even start looking at space is to know exactly. Cause I'll have people call me and I'm like, have you looked at your numbers? Do you know what you need to spend? And they, they don't have a clue as far as how much square footage they need and all that. And, you know, just really still really, really know your market. It still comes down to that location. Parking is key always for restaurants. And, you know, do you need a drive-through? Do you need an end cap? Your visibility, your signage, all of that due diligence is so important. And we actually provide that service to our clients too, you know, looking to help to make sure that they find the right location. And my goal always is to, you know, I strive to help my clients find that number one location and just knowing the research up front will save you a lot of money and heartache. I never want to see somebody going out of business. <laughs> right. So you said something super key, know your numbers. I love that. And a little quick story on how it played out for me a few years ago. A realtor walks in the door and says, Marcus, you need a second location. I said, I don't, but I'll look at your location anyway. Out of courtesy, I'll make a trip up there. He says, here's the rent. I looked at him and I said, that's a lot. He goes, no, it's not. I said, okay, would you agree that a ratio, let's throw out some ratios here, that a restaurant should be paying six to 10% of their overall sales should be to their lease? And he goes, yeah, that's the average, six to 10%. I said, okay, what did the previous restaurant owner do here? And he threw out a number like 800,000. I said, okay. You quoted me so much for rent. Let's 10, 6, 10%. I said, I looked at him, I said, the last restaurant did 800,000. You're telling me I have to do 2.2 million based upon the numbers you just agreed upon. Mm -hmm. And he goes, yeah. 
goes, I didn't realize that. And I said, go back to the owner. You're never gonna, you're never gonna get a restaurateur who knows what they're doing to rent this location from you. If there's, there's, if you just can't, you're not, you're not gonna get a restaurant that's gonna outperform the last one by four times or two, three times. It's not gonna happen. And you're gonna get somebody who's naive, which a lot of restaurateurs are naive because they're confident, well, I can make this work. I don't care if the other person failed, I'm different. And they jump into this thing and all of a sudden they realize that they're no different, that they should have done more research. They should have done their due diligence. They should have spent more time marketing and all this kind of stuff. And then they figure out a couple years later that, hey, I just can't make it work. Something happened wrong. So I love numbers, 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 numbers. If you're, here's the one thing. A lot of chefs are great chefs, but they're not number people. And if a chef can't figure out his own food costs when he's working for somebody, there's no way he's going to be able to run a restaurant for himself. It's just not going to happen. And I encourage every restaurateur, every chef out there that wants to open a restaurant, you need to go take accounting classes, understand ratios, numbers, and be able to, like that, just, just recite them like, 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 like to the back of your hand. So numbers, I love that. I love that. Right. I would say another thing is, you know, even from the Brinker days, we had to, we probably had about a 60 page due diligence. Another thing that number one thing that we always looked for because we, you know, Chili's on the border has alcohol. I always had to look, make sure that there wasn't a daycare, a church or a school within 300 feet. So there's stuff like that, that you need to know about too. Cause you know, they find a great location. I'm like, did you guys realize there's a daycare across the street? We can't go here. And you know, it just killed the deal. So knowing some of that stuff up front, hiring the right consultant to help you will save you a lot of money to do that due diligence up front. Yep. You know, spend, spend a few thousand, whatever it is to get. Not having money. alcohol will kill your business. Literally. Yes. I mean, it is, people don't realize, well, you know, I opened up another quick story before we end here. I opened up 2003. I didn't open up with a liquor license first. I didn't do my due diligence. The previous owners had a liquor license. Well, between the previous owner opening up in the last 30 years and me filling in the gap of two years, there no church moved in. I just assumed. I didn't check. I didn't go to the liquor authority. I didn't contact an attorney. I didn't go to a liquor expediter. We fill out the mm -hmm. application and I get denied. No, no. I'm four months old. And I'm thinking, I don't have alcohol. This, I know the importance of it, but restaurants think I'll open now and get my alcohol license later. No, no, you won't be in business later if you can't get it. Luckily enough, in the state of New York, we had some great representatives in our area, elected officials, and they went to the, they took it to the state, and I was the third restaurant in New York State ever to have site-specific legislation. The church approved of it, where I did not have to go by the 200-foot door-to-door. I was allowed a full liquor license because the church signed off and said it's okay, and unanimously, the state Senate and legislator approved it, voted for it, and says, yes, Marcus deserves it. The mayor went to bat for me and said, we need it for our economy, our local community. And I was the third one in New York State. Wow. My site-specific legislation for a liquor license less than 200 foot feet from a church. But that would have killed my business. I wouldn't be here doing mm -hmm. what I'm doing right now if, if that didn't happen. Yeah, so. that's, that's great. That's one last thing I want to throw out. If you plan on opening a restaurant, the number one, other, another key thing to do is go visit your local economic development director 
They have a wealth of information all about the community from aerial maps to demographics to properties available for sale, for lease, and that's their job. And they can tell you all of the information. You wanna make sure that, you know, one area we also had here in town, the new highways were coming in. So I always look on the Texas Department of Transportation. It shows all the road construction. So as you know, one area, they were widening the roads. This whole line of restaurants ended up closing because those restaurants did not know. And that's part of the due diligence making sure, I mean, there's so much into it. It's not, you know, you may not know what's happening right there, but the city, you know, the city, the state may have road widening, which may wipe you out. So all of that stuff, do your due diligence. When they close an exit on a highway, you will suffer. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yep. You have to know all that stuff up front and a lot of it is up front. And, you know, that's why hiring the right architect, the right civil engineer, the right consultants will, will make a big difference and don't rush to it. Make sure you have all that information. Well, Pam, this has been fascinating. You're a wealth of knowledge, wealth of knowledge. Um, I'd love for you to come back and do some very specific um, interviews that we can put on to our Restaurant Growth Secrets University, which is where our clients log in and, um, and uh, uh, get a lot of more in-depth training. I would love to do that someday in the future with you because, wow, what a, what a wealth of knowledge you've had here. Um, and this is very very practical stuff that every restaurateur needs to know whether they're opening now or they've already been open. It's never too late to hire somebody to nego renegotiate your lease. Right. Never too late to do this. And people are shocked. I'm like, no, renegotiate your lease. Things aren't the same as they were five years ago, 10 years ago. Whatever it is, things, things, things change. Hire somebody who knows what they're doing. All this stuff is powerful information that you're talking about. Um, so thank you very, very, very much. I appreciate your time and uh, super excited to get this posted and let a lot of people just get some really valuable information from this. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Love to share the knowledge with more than 30 years. And, you know, if I can, you know, connect with me on LinkedIn, I'm on there. You know, Pamela Goodwin, definitely connect with me on there. I always have content and videos on that, but would definitely like to be on on your show again Great. or part of your university to go more in detail on a lot of this information. Do you have a website people can find you? I do. It's pamgoodwin.com. Pamgoodwin.com. Super easy to find. Super I'm on all the social medias. So connect with me on from Twitter to LinkedIn. I have more than 30,000 on that to Instagram. So I, I really like sharing a lot of information on all that social media. Excellent. All right. Thank you, Pam. Thank you. Have a great day.